The Water Values Podcast, Session 78. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm David McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. We've got a terrific show today with a very learned individual in the water sector. But first, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor and rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory on which you're listening. That really, uh, I'd be really appreciative of that. As it stands now, we've got 29 ratings on iTunes with 26 of those ratings being five stars, and I'd like to see your rating and review added to that. So thanks a bunch for it. Um, Now for today's show, our guest is Rob Renner, the Executive Director of the Water Research Foundation. Rob is a very accomplished individual in the water sector. You'll get that fast as we speak with him about his utility uh, history, his water history right out of the gates. Uh, It's very impressive, and Rob gives us a terrific insight into what today's utilities are worried about and how they're solving the problems associated with those worries. You'll really want to listen to Rob's insights on utilities and financial stresses, integrated water resources management, and climate change. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Rob, thanks very much for coming on the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate you taking some time out of this chilly morning to to come visit with us. Um, to start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, I'd be happy to, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It was a little chilly on the walk over. <laughs> um, basically, uh, my background is I have a, a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's in environmental engineering. And uh, after uh, graduating, I, I went into the United States Army. I was back in the Vietnam era, got number nine for a draft number, and was going to be drafted, so signed up for ROTC, spent a couple of years in the United States Army and the Medical Service Corps, left a captain, and during that time, um, basically, it was like working for the EPA for the Army, uh, Medical Service Corps, Army Environmental Hygiene Agency. I um, inspected water and wastewater treatment plants for two years, and then when I left the Army, I was in uh, Denver and uh, went to work for a consulting firm, uh, consulted for about uh, 20 years. Uh, first as a, a designer and resident engineer, and then on to operations. And I had my own firm with a couple of partners uh, called Process Applications. And we primarily dealt with utility op- operations, uh, optimizing uh, utility operations, doing some research work with EPA, uh, from which the Partnership for Safe Water came about. And then following that, I went to work for the American Waterworks Association um, for about eight or nine years as their uh, chief operating officer and then went on to another company called ISA and Research Triangle Park and then came back to the Water Research Foundation. I've been there for about uh, 10 or 11 years. And um, I got interested in in water, I think, in in college. Um, In engineering, I didn't really enjoy it that much. Um, But as I got on in my classes, got more into the water and wastewater uh, parts of it, and as I going into graduate school, spent time in microbiology and things like that, and so I got very interested in it. And I think the thing that always really interested me in the in the field was the public health aspect, was the protection of public health, and so that's what's driven it. Um, 
in terms of optimizing water and wastewater plants and working with the association and now with the Water Research Foundation. That, that's a fascinating story. You know, uh, I, I know it's not our main topic today, but, but you said you inspected water and wastewater plants while you were in the Army. Uh, and were those, were those uh, kind of you know, package plants that were set up for, for units, or were they uh, a waste, water and wastewater facilities at actual bases? Uh, typically, they were at Army posts, large posts, and so they were typical uh, water and wastewater facilities you'd see. As part of the Medical Service Corps, your, your mission is to support troops in the field, and so we did have portable water treatment units and did work with those, but most of the work that I was doing was, um, it was it was the advent of the Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, and so the Army had to get into compliance with those federal regulations. So that was part of our job was to make sure that the Army installations were were compliant. Yeah. That I bet that was just incredibly interesting, and uh, that just sounds like a great experience. Um, well, you mentioned you're with the Water Research Foundation now, so could you tell us a little about what what the Water Research Foundation is? Well, the Water Research Foundation is a, is a very, very interesting um, operation. Uh, it's a research cooperative of uh, uh, utilities in the United States and Canada and, and Australia. And it was started in 1966. It really got going in 1986 with our subscription program when we signed up all these utilities. But the, the fundamental basis of the, the foundation is that there is a lot of commonality in terms of the water issues across the United States and Canada, as well as, as worldwide. And so utilities, rather than studying uh, issues individually, they pool their resources to study those things. And so our research agenda is driven by my board of directors, which are 20 people who are CEOs of utilities across uh, there's two from Canada, uh, mostly from the United States, all the way from New York to Metropolitan Water District. We have one in Australia. And those people know what the issues are in water, and they set that research agenda. And so the agenda uh, is it's an applied research agenda because people have to be able to use it. Otherwise, they don't want to pay their, their subscription uh, to belong. And it can be anything from water quality issues. It can be infrastructure issues, finance customer service, anything related to uh, helping a water, wastewater utility uh, function at its best. Sure. And so you, you mentioned it was a research cooperative now, and you identified at least where some of the members are from. I mean, are these typically the real big utilities uh, or, or smaller utilities in, involved in the WRF at all? Well, it's a mix. Uh, in in uh, in North America and the United States, there's about 300 utilities that serve more than 100,000 people. We have 1,000 utilities, um, 32 in Australia, uh, all the large cities in, in Canada, all the large cities in the United States. And so, but when you realize that there aren't that many that serve that many people, I would guess that, you know, 800 of these utilities are, are, are from very small up to medium-sized also. So it pretty much is the gamut of utility size. Okay. Uh, what uh, what other aspects of the WRF? I mean, I know that uh, you have a, a role in the Global Water Research Coalition, so can you talk a little about how WRF interfaces with, with that? Well, the Global Water Research Coalition was started uh, by the foundation in 2002, and it was founded uh, 
in order to incorporate a global perspective on research and to be able to leverage research dollars. Um, there, it's comprised of, of 14 different organizations similar to us. Uh, the criteria is you need to be a national research program, um, and then uh, the executive directors or CEOs of these foundations or research institutes meet, we meet twice a year, compare our research agendas, look and see where there is commonalities, and then we try to uh, partner on research in order to leverage research, research dollars. So that's essentially it. The members are, are in Canada, in the United States, in Singapore, Australia, South Africa, uh, Germany, France, uh, UK, and the Netherlands at the, at the present time. Okay, and what seem to be the hot button research issues? Because you're you're spanning the globe, and I'm just kind of curious if if all these utilities are do they have common issues that they need to be resolved through research, uh, or you know, kind of what are the issues that they are looking to to get solved through through your research? Well, the issues are are pretty common, and uh, they, they can tend to be along uh, infrastructure issues relative to uh, are there techniques that you can use to assess infrastructure and, and new technologies that you can uh, assess, uh, say, when a pipeline is going to have problems so that you can fix it before it actually bursts. Are there, are there technologies available that can reduce the cost, lining, structural linings, things like that? Uh, water quality issues tend to be similar. Algal toxins that you read about in the newspaper, uh, we started studying those in '96 in Australia. Um, um, financial issues uh, can be similar. Uh, there's just almost all the issues relative to water and wastewater, whether it's nutrient removal, uh, stormwater control. Those types of issues are are pretty much worldwide. Okay. Um I think I think I can wrap my head pretty easily around a lot of the research related to say infrastructure, uh, and like you know for example algal toxins. But uh, what does the research entail when you're looking at financial issues? Well, in terms of financial issues, the one of the the big issues right now, and we just completed a study on residential end use, but uh, water use in in across the world, but in in, in the study, which was North American, uh, U.S. and, and Canada, um, has shown, we did a study 10 or 15 years ago. We redid the same study, and, and water use has dropped about 25%. And it's dropping, you know, 1% to 2% a, a year. And water utilities make their revenue based on how much water is, is sold. And, and the issue is, is that with water, wastewater utilities, about... 80% of their costs are fixed. They're tied up in a lot of it in underground infrastructure. Um, but 80% of their revenues are variable. And so when the, when the water flow drops, their revenues drop. And this is at a time when their infrastructure needs in terms of uh, repair and replacement of uh, aging infrastructure. Uh, it's also a time when there's changes in regulations in terms of nutrient removal uh, stormwater that has to be dealt with, um, water quality regulations that have to be dealt with. So there's a need for increased spending at a time when revenues are, are dropping. And so 
the research that some of the research we've done is looking at the rates structures in terms of what is the best way to, to structure rates so that a utility has the revenues that, that they need and a lot of it uh, implies putting more of the revenue into the fixed uh, area to support uh, the infrastructure that's, that's in the ground that isn't dependent on the variable flow of water. Yeah, that's a real conundrum because you want you want your rates to send a price signal so that people practice conservation, but yet, as you say, the the fixed costs are so high, and it just you know when when you mentioned the the eighty twenty split there, it just my mind flashed back to one of the early rate cases I was working on where we had a uh, a sewer utility that had a flat sewer charge, and the the customers and the uh, consumer advocate party uh, were just all over us because they they said no, it needs to be variable and you and it needs and it was uh, it was a very difficult rate case. We we ended up and we ended up uh, uh, moving to a variable rate in a subsequent rate case. But I remember our consultant he kind of said the exact same thing you you were saying that look you know these utilities their fixed costs are very steep and it really doesn't matter if one person's living alone or if it's a family of five it's it's the costs are not significantly different to serve them uh, at least on the wastewater side well that's uh, true on both sides because uh when when you have to uh dig a trench in the ground and put a pipe in whether it's a water pipe or a wastewater pipe it, it takes tremendous resources to do that and so that fixed cost of service, the, the, the size of the, the treatment plant um, on water being size uh, for, for peak demand, same thing on, on the wastewater side, you have to worry about storm flows, uh, so you end up with capacities you have to support, but then that infrastructure that's built, that's fixed, whether it's above ground or below ground, is, is sizable. Uh, the issue that, that, that we have with rates, and you're right, it's very difficult in terms of rate cases. Uh, whether it's a, a public utility that is just going to the to the voters or to the council to get approval or to a board, or whether it's a privately owned utility that has to go to the PUC uh, to get that increase, it's, it's difficult. Um, over the last 10 years or so, utilities have been raising rates well above inflation to catch up with legs in terms of infrastructure replacement. And so what's happening is, is the, that cost to the rate payers going is going up and up, and um, and and the whole basis of running a utility is that it's supported by the ratepayer. It's a full cost of service to repair and replace what you need to do. What happens when you get into a recession like 2007, 2008, where you see revenues drop, is what utilities tend to do is defer maintenance. Uh, and when you defer maintenance, then that bill just gets pushed down the road, which is part of the problem now and why we have decaying infrastructure that uh, makes it uh, more difficult to, to repair in the long term. But then the issue also becomes in terms of the large um, cities, uh, some cities having uh, fairly low economic uh, areas um, with people living below the poverty line. When those rates are going up at above inflation every year, you get tremendous uh, pushback relative to uh, social justice and being able to make sure that people can 
and pay for water. So there's pushback on affordability. In fact, we're, we've just kicked off a couple studies on on affordability and and how do you um, how do utilities come up with uh, programs to uh, get the revenues they they need, but yet be fair to people who don't have the necessary resources. So there's a number of a number of those types of uh, uh, programs that we've we've been working on. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of of lifeline rates, um, where a subsistence level of of services provided, you know, whatever that that may be to to people who qualify for uh, for the lifeline rates. You know, I, I think I, I have not been in a jurisdiction that has uh, statutory authority for those lifeline rates uh, on the at least on the water side. I know they're they're fairly common on the telephone side, or they were before uh, deregulation. Uh, but you know, w in terms of those affordability studies, when do you anticipate the research is going to be done and that study is going to be released? Well, the EPA is working on one now, and we're just kicking one off. Um, with a group of other organizations, uh, National Association of Water Companies, uh, NACWA, Nas National Association of Clean Water Agencies, AWWA, AMWA. Uh, it's, it's a group that uh, spans water, wastewater, and we're going to be kicking that off in a few months, and it'll be a relatively short study. I would guess probably be available in about a year. Uh, some of the other work we do have that's completed already uh, that, that we've done, but I mean, it looks at things like bill discounts, lifeline rates, conservation rates, payment plans, you know, giving to local charities. There's a lot of different ways that utilities across North America try to deal with this issue. Almost all the large utilities have those types of programs. Um, sometimes it's, it's difficult uh, to get people uh, to use them, and that's one of the things that uh, that we have to make sure that that the customers are aware that there are these support mechanisms available. Right. And when it, when it comes to lifeline rates, you know, I had a conversation with someone uh, recently who just, when we talked about lifeline rates, they said, oh, well, you know, you just make the first 2,000 gallons well below cost for everybody. And then, and, uh, then you, as usage increases, that's when you, you catch the people who wouldn't be as affected by affordability. But in my mind, that's, that's not a true lifeline rate. A true lifeline rate is a subsidized rate for those people who would have trouble paying, would have trouble with, with the affordability issue. So for someone uh, who could pay, they would, they would essentially subsidize those, uh, those in need. And so I think that – and the problem that, that I see there is that a lot of states, they don't have that legislative mandate or that legislative authority – to, to have that lifeline rate because, you know, as you, meant, you mentioned earlier, cost-based rates. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem with, with lifeline rates is that they aren't cost-based. That's correct. Um, and I think another thing in terms of, of people uh, probably don't understand the value of water. It's the most essential thing to, to human life, uh, except for the, the oxygen that we breathe in, in air. Um, I mean, you can survive about three days without it, so it's very, very essential to human life. It's essential to commerce, to having a good, good society, a healthy society. But it's not a free thing. And some people say, well, water's a commodity. It's really a service because water's free. I mean, I can, 
look out the window here in your office and see the Platte River, and I could give you a bucket and say, go down and get your water, and it's free to you. But for it to be delivered to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, at, a, at the highest quality that it's capable of, of you drinking, safely drinking it, that takes a lot of resources relative to people, to pumping, to chemicals, to power. And so that's where the, uh, the cost of water comes about. And, and most utilities, uh, the, you know, the public utilities as, as well as the private utilities, um, they're, they're in the business of providing a service uh, to people. But that service does cost money to generate. Yeah, I, I agree completely with everything you just said. Uh, let's, let's turn our focus a little bit uh, to a related matter, and that's integrated water management. But can you talk a little about uh, the work that the Water Research Foundation is doing in the area of integrated water management? Well, integrated water management has just gotten to be extremely important. And we, uh, we have 10 different focus areas, and uh, that integrated water management is, is one of those. And uh, so we're putting uh, resources into that area. Uh, we've funded uh, two projects just uh, this year, one on the resilience of alternative water supplies and one on uh, integrating land and, and water management. And just, I guess, uh, for the audience relative to integrated water management, I mean, we're really talking about the, the concept of, of, of one water in terms of how, how does a, a utility uh, deal with, with water. And so it's, are, are there ways that we can capture stormwater? Uh, should we be reusing wastewater? Should we be using brackish groundwater? Should we be using uh, desalinated seawater? Uh, and it depends on where you are in the world and where you are in North America. Uh, there's water-rich areas and there's water, relatively water-poor areas in the U.S. And so your, your water portfolio that you have is going to vary depending on, on where you are in the, in the country. But uh, the more water-short area that you are, the more important it is that you have a diverse portfolio uh, relative to the and the, and the planning horizons for a large utility tend to be very long. They're probably at least 50 years because to generate any kind of a large project takes years and years. I mean, you could look at uh, San Diego County Water Authority and their, their, um, they just started up their new desalination plant. Well, that was 12 years in, in the making, uh, millions of dollars worth of lawsuits and uh, to get this, this project underway to be able to take seawater, desalt it, and, and make it um, suitable for, for domestic use. So uh, when you talk about integrated water management, you're talking about managing, in, in effect, the water cycle for the, for the best use in terms of uh, environmental needs, uh, domestic needs, uh, that, that sort of thing. Sure, and, and you mentioned the two studies that you're, you're looking at on integrated water management. I mean, where, at least in North America, let's say, where do you see us going in terms of an integrated water management portfolio? The way I, where I see it going, because I think as, as climate change progresses, it's going to change um, whether you're running a water utility, wastewater utility, stormwater utility, uh, how you think. And what I see on a, on a city basis, as I would see more and more that you're, you're going to see those utilities coming under one roof so that you can manage better holistically um, the, the water resource. It's happening now, and I think you'll, you'll see it more. Uh, you're, you're going to see uh, much more 
reuse of water, not uh, just in terms of landscape, uh, watering, irrigation, things like that, but you're going to see a large uh, movement, I think, especially in water short areas to indirect and direct potable reuse. We're seeing that now. There's, there's a number of questions. The technology is there to be able to treat that water. There's a few uh, areas that, you know, the, of research that, that are left. But so I see that movement really to, to the one water uh, concept where you'll, where you'll have a regional authority and a city that's handling all, all that water. Storm water is another big issue. Uh, what's happening as you get into the Midwest, the Northeast, is you're getting the, uh, the prediction that was, was probably put out 10 years ago is it will get uh, less frequent but more intense storms. Those more intense storms uh, cause significant flooding. Uh, I was talking to Dave St. Pierre, who runs uh, Chicago Metro, uh, and he's responsible for stormwater and the issues they've had just in the last year or two with some of the flatter areas in Chicago when you get these huge rainstorms and the amount of flooding that occurs and how do you deal with that uh, because oftentimes you'll end up with a lot of water backing into basements and things like that. Not only cars floating around, but you cause a lot of damage to, to people's homes. And so uh, that's one side of the equation. Then you go to the, the southwest and, and the, the extreme dry areas and, and, uh, and okay, how do we manage this, this, this precious resource and how do we get a bigger portfolio? Uh, El Paso is a great example um, being down in the, the, the Texas desert, essentially, um, where they have a, a surface water supply, they have a groundwater supply, uh, they have a deep groundwater supply that's brackish water that they desalt, and so they have a whole portfolio that they can draw on to make sure they have adequate uh, supply of, of water, and they'll also be looking at a reuse also, so that they have the full, um, the full water cycle that they're employing to make sure that they they have a healthy environment as well as a, a healthy population. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right on the convergence of all these utilities and and you know, managing water, uh, just as you said, holistically through the, the water treatment, water purification, stormwater uh, cycles that, that are out there. Uh, you, you touched on it, I think, when you were talking about uh, stormwater in particular, but climate change. Uh, how do you see climate change uh, impacting uh, our, our water utilities? Well, climate change has another, another amount, a number of impacts, I should say. Um, the, the thing I talked about relative to less frequent, more intense storms uh, causes issues. The, the big thing on, the, on the, the drinking water side of the equation is that water utilities have used past hydrology information to plan water supply. And as those numbers change, people don't really know. For example, we did a study for the Front Range Utilities in Colorado on climate change and its effect, trying to figure out, okay, what will the yield of water be, be off, the, off the mountains? The same thing for the Colorado River, where you have seven basin states that are pretty much reliant on that. And, and it's difficult now to use past models because we're seeing a whole different thing. One of the things that we're seeing, uh, and it's affecting places like Seattle, as well as the Colorado Basin, is that as temperatures warm, the precipitation 
may stay the same in, in the mountains, but it tends to be more rain and less snow. And snow is a great storage device. Um, and without that, and if you don't have the reservoir capacity, uh, that, that rain runs off. And the other thing we're seeing is we're seeing that the snow melt occurs earlier in the year. Uh, in the Rocky Mountains, we're seeing uh, wind storms out of the southwest depositing dust layers on the snow that's causing it to melt uh, prematurely. Uh, on the, in the northeast, midwest, when you get the more intense, uh, less frequent storms, you get water quality issues in terms of runoff, which brings more uh, fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, turbidity, uh, impacts uh, water quality that you have to deal with. On, on the wastewater side, you get increased uh, storm flows that you have to deal with. Um, sea level rise is a big issue uh, for places like Miami. Uh, most of those facilities are built low, and so we have to be concerned about that. We're already seeing when you get storm events and the storm surges on high tides, we're seeing, seeing issues. Um, most of the wastewater treatment facilities are along riverbeds, uh, so the flooding. So utilities are looking at all these things, and they're starting to adapt by changing uh, elevations of, of facilities, um, changing how they're, they're planning uh, in terms of water supplies. That brings in the whole portfolio thing. So utilities have recognized this for quite a while, and they've been actively working, I would say, probably around 10 years now to start to mitigate uh, the effects that they're, that they're seeing. But um, while there's public discourse, I guess, relative to, you know, is climate change real or not, it seems like that's getting more accepted. The causes... Um, you know, is it man-made, not man-made? Uh, the feeling, I would say, of a utility manager is it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is we're seeing changes relative to the, the water cycles, and we need to adapt to that. And so they've, they've begun planning uh, and actually now constructing facilities to, to avoid those types of issues that, that we're seeing. Sure. So what are some of the mitigation factors that you're, that, that you're seeing out there that utilities are – uh, engaging in or, or in order to deal with the uh, rising temperatures? Well, or, or climate change, I should say. Excuse I would me. say that um, in, in the water short areas, you're seeing the, uh, the, the movements to broader uh, water portfolios. You're seeing very aggressive conservation programs. Uh, you're seeing turf buyback programs. I, Metropolitan Water District, I think, what about $390 million of turf buyback? so that people do more xeriscaping so it doesn't uh, because outside water use tends to be the highest use in those areas those programs have been very active in in, in Phoenix and Tucson and Las Vegas uh, so the, the the amount of conservation that's been done in those areas has been significant that's your cheapest water the cheapest water you have is the water that you save so that's where any utility that's in a water short area is going to start but then you start to look at, at, at reuse and desalination, uh, those types of issues. So th those, that's part of the mitigation effort. Um, if you're in a, a water-rich area, say, for example, in, in New England, uh, but if you get less frequent storms, a lot of the smaller utilities there have relatively small reservoirs. And if you don't get consistent rainfall, that causes problems. So you're going to see some storage increases in those areas. In, in areas that you're getting... Uh, higher amounts of, of rainfall less frequently where you get those storm events, 
you're already seeing uh, pump stations being raised. So the, uh, same thing with with treatment plants, so you can protect uh, you can protect your electrical gear and things like that from from rising water. So there's a a lot of planning studies being done relative to what is the effect. It's very difficult uh, with climate change models to bring them down to a regional basis. It's a very difficult prediction to try to figure out, you know, where is there going to be more more rain and less rain on a continental basis. I mean, we can kind of see that the northern northern part of the, the U.S. and southern part of Canada will probably be wetter. You know, the southwest will be drier. Colorado here is kind of middle line of the state. is, But it's, it's, it's iffy. We don't really know for sure. Um, but we are seeing pretty consistent results uh, generally in some areas. And so there's a whole bunch of things, as I said, that are, are being done to try to mitigate that. Sure, sure. You know, Rob, I feel like we could talk for a long time about all these issues. Uh, but... You know, we're, we've kind of reached the end of our time today, and I want to thank you so much for coming in and and really uh, sharing a lot of knowledge with us about what's going on in, in with the Water Research Foundation, all the issues you're looking at. So I really want to thank you for doing that because you are absolutely fantastic describing all this. Uh, for those who want to find out more about uh, you and the Water Research Foundation's work, where can they go to find that information out? Probably the easiest thing is to just jump onto our website, uh, which is waterrf. Uh, W-A-T-E-R, then R-F dot O-R-G. Get onto our website, and you can see just about everything about us. Um, if not, you can, uh, uh, you can call me at 303-347-6150, and I'll steer you to somebody to answer your questions. So uh, my staff is going to kill me for that little, <laughs> for that little uh, ditty there. But anyway, yeah, we're pretty uh, much out there so people can find out and what we have, and we're happy to help them with information. Terrific. Well, again, thanks so much, Rob. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You bet. Well, that was my interview with Rob Brenner, terrific guy with a great understanding of issues affecting water utilities, and I use that in the converged sense, and how those utilities are solving uh, problems affecting the utilities. Uh, well, here are a few takeaways. Uh, first, and I think this point is easily missed, is that when Rob talked about his background, he mentioned that water utilities are really about the public health. And that's too often overlooked, and we don't have to look any further than the situation in Flint, Michigan, to know that water is different than most services. There's no substitute for it. You can't cut corners when you're dealing with such an important service like the public health. Uh, and so it's, it's one of the reasons that water utilities are typically less inclined to make changes. Uh, they're very risk-averse, and the risks are so high uh, because the public health is involved. You know, another takeaway is the financial pressures that our water utilities are under. Water use has been declining for a number of reasons, uh, conservation, more water-efficient fixtures, things like that. And the U.S. Uh, has been in a, was in a financial crisis for a while, so there was a reluctance to raise rates when a lot of people were having a tough time economically. And that leads to, as Rob said, deferred maintenance, which in the long run costs everyone money, except the ratepayers who enjoyed the below-cost price of water when that infrastructure was allowed to deteriorate. You know, I'd really like to see uh, more innovative rate structures that allow lifeline rates to, to address affordability and social justice issues um, and, those rates, and rate structures that would avoid the problem of water conservation leading to rate increases um, because that inevitably 
uh, leads to customer confusion. You know, why, well, I, I use less water. Why are you raising my rates again? So I think I'd, I'd like to see rate structures that, that can uh, avoid that customer confusion and, and also uh, have a social justice element to it, affordability element to it. Now, I know those rate structures are out there. I just think we need to keep researching them to see which ones work the best. My final takeaway involves climate change and the way in which utilities are adapting. You know, Rob mentioned that utilities have been planning for a changing climate for a decade now. As we learn and understand more about our changing environment, I'm going to be fascinated to see how utilities continue to adapt and plan for that future. You know, I've got some great guests coming up that will address some of these issues as well as some of the White House's Moonshot for Water initiative issues. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the news on that, um, and they're going to be doing it with technologies that are going to lead the charge towards that climate changed future and that future, which the White House is conceiving with its Moonshot for Water initiative. So please subscribe uh, on your uh, on your podcast directory so that you don't miss any of those upcoming great guests. Well, what interested you about that interview uh, with Rob Renner? Please let me know by posting a comment on the show notes, which will be posted at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 78. I also appreciate any feedback you have by, and you can email that to me at david at the or you can tweet at me at DTM one nine nine three. Use the hashtag water values. You can also contact me with suggestions for potential interviewees, water issues you'd like to hear more about, or even just to let me know what you liked and didn't like about the interview. Um, and you can let me know all these things by taking the uh, online questionnaire that is the, the, the listener survey that's up on thewatervalues.com. So I really appreciate your support, and thank you so much. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to the Water Values Podcast, and please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable asset, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.